Well, in light of what's happening a little later today, I thought it might be appropriate to not be in Colossians today and rather be in Isaiah 40, verse 31, which says, But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Yeah. (laughs) If Billy were preaching, we probably would be in Isaiah. Alas, we are going to continue in the book of Colossians. If you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to the book of Colossians. This is our sixth message in Colossians that we've already been looking. We're finishing up a section this morning as we're going to be in verses 21 through 23. Uh, we're actually going to take a break after that for a little bit as uh, this, uh, I'm actually going to be on vacation. Ba- Pastor Billy is going to be doing a, a short series uh, in between until I come back. But before we continue in our passage this morning, I think it's important for us to just see what we've where we've been already. Just kind of frame what's going on here and understand what is happening. And to do that, as we do this review, I don't want to just throw information at you. Well, here's what we saw in this verse. Here's what happened there. I'd like to ask for a favor. I would like you to try, use your imagination to put yourself in the place of the Colossians. To imagine what it felt like for them when they first got this letter, as this letter is being read to them, what were their emotions? What was happening as they heard this for the very first time? It shouldn't be too hard for us because there are, in fact, many similarities between us and them. At the very beginning, if you look at the first verses, we see that the contents of this letter are for believers. Paul is writing to the Christians in a specific location. He's writing to the saints and faithful brothers in Colossae. What would we call a group, a local gathering of believers in one place? A church. Paul is writing to the the church there, and, and he starts with, with something wonderful because they're believers. They have heard the gospel. They have believed the gospel. And the gospel is transforming them. This is wonderful news. This is the condition that many of us find ourselves in this morning. We finished up the series of John. Who is Jesus? We believe who Jesus is. We've placed our faith in him. We, have been, we are being and have been transformed. That's the conditions of the the Colossians. Then one day, a letter comes, and it's from someone they really admire. Not only is it from Paul, who is an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, it's likely that Paul would be their spiritual grandfather. That Paul had shared the gospel with Epaphras, probably in Ephesians, uh, in, in Ephesus. Epaphras then has come to Colossae, he's shared the gospel with them, and now they get this letter from Paul. And at the beginning, Paul tells them, he starts in a great way, he tells them how encouraged he is by their testimony. The testimony he has received regarding them. Paul is thanking God because of what God has done in their lives. Now just imagine with me, if, if you were hearing this letter, you, you got this letter, all of you are gathered around, someone opens it up and they start reading, and the first verses, verses 3 through 8, are all these things that Paul is like, man, 
I am so encouraged by what I've heard that's happened for you. When you were a kid, did you ever decide that you were going to, to maybe do a, a project for your parents, maybe do uh, something that you knew would really please them? And, and you worked on it, and you finished it all up. And then finally, your parents saw what you did, maybe that schoolwork project, maybe you cleaned your room, and then they came and they said, wow, I am so pleased with what you did. That's got to be one of the best feelings in the world. When someone acknowledges the hard work that you did, and they, they say, wow, this is incredible. And the Colossians have that. They got the stamp of approval of one they admire, and that's one of the best things. But then after sharing what he's thankful for, Paul then informs the Colossians about his prayer request for them. He says, We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. How do you think the Colossians feel after hearing that part? First part was great. I do not stop thanking the Father every time I pray for you since I heard of what's been happening in your midst. But then he says, I also do not cease praying for this, that you would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. This prayer that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Do you think that maybe the Colossians started to feel a little bit uncomfortable at this time? Have you ever had someone that, that just is giving you lots of compliments, that they're just coming up and saying, man, you, you are this and you are this, and they're just, they're building you up. And, and at some point in the conversation, this thought comes in your mind, man, if you only knew who I really was. It's nice, and, and that first compliment is fine, but then when it keeps going and then you're like, oh, I, I don't know if this really fits me. I don't really know if this really describes me. And then, and then they say, and, and this is what you're going to do. You're, you're, you're going to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. If it weren't hard enough to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, how much more so after Paul then tells them what the Lord has done and who the Lord is. Paul tells them, this is what the Lord has done. He's qualified you to share, to receive an inheritance you don't deserve. He delivered you out of a prison your sins caused you to be in. He established you in his kingdom that you have no right to be in. He redeemed you and forgave your sins. In light of what the Lord has done, how do you think the Colossians felt about the walk that they have to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? If that's what the Lord has done for me, I'm supposed to walk in a manner worthy of that? And then Paul makes it even greater because Paul goes on to share who the Lord is. This is what we saw last week. He's God. He's the Lord over all creation. All things were created in him, through him, and for him. He's the head of the body. He came to this earth. He took on flesh. He died. He is the firstborn of the dead in order that he might be preeminent. In him, all things will be reconciled. In, in the end, he wins because he's God. Everything will be on its knees before him. Again, put yourself in the, the position of the Colossians. Started out encouraging. 
But then he places this burden of you need to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And who is this Lord? This is what he's done. This is who he is. I wonder how they felt. And I don't think it's a hard question for us to answer because I think we can just answer it by how we feel. How do you feel if, if you were to give yourself a grade, let's do a spiritual report card. Right now, if I said, give yourself a grade for the last week, how was your last week as far as walking in a manner worthy of the Lord? In light of what he's done, in light of who he is, what grade would you give yourself if that's the goal? See, if I were to do this myself, I think I would be pretty discouraged because I think I'm giving myself a failing grade. Am I really walking in a manner worthy of the Lord? This is the Lord. This is what he's done. What's your grade? Are you somewhat discouraged because you feel like you're failing? See, when I really stop and consider who the, Lord, what he, who the Lord is and what he's done and how I'm living, one isn't worthy of the other. On Friday in our community group, we, most of our discussion was about this, about this, this weight, this reality that, that it's discouraging because this is who we know about who God is. Our whole thing last week, based on the truth of who Christ is, we need to apply that. And then we look at what we're bringing, what we're offering, and it's like, man, this is nothing. It can be very discouraging because we feel like we are failing. I wonder if that's how the Colossians felt. If, I, if you feel that way, how, how I often feel, I believe that our three verses this morning will serve as an immense encouragement as well as a gentle exhortation. My goal for us this morning is that we would leave encouraged in our prospect of living for Christ, that we would be encouraged to do what Christ has called us to do. Here's our big idea. Our new life through Christ causes us to live for Christ as we persevere in Christ. Our new life through Christ causes us to live for Christ as we persevere in Christ. Let's look at these verses that are so encouraging for us as we are seeking to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. The first question is, who were we without Christ? If the Colossians were feeling like failures in light of the work they were called to, Paul offers great encouragement by pointing to their past. This is what verse 21 says, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Throughout this entire passage, and you'll even see it in your handout, Paul uses a lot of triplets. He groups things into, into groups of three. He says three ways that he describes our past. This is what you once were. This was your identity. You were alienated. You were hostile in mind. You were doing evil deeds. Let's look at those one at a time. What does it mean that we were alienated? It means that we were strangers. We were not part of the people of God. We were separated from him. Now, on its own, we might look at that and say, that's not too bad. But the wrong assumption is to look at that alienation as something neutral. 
where we're just in this world and we're still trying to choose who we're going to give our allegiance to, but we're not negative. We're just neutral. We were aliens. But that's not the case because Paul says we were hostile in mind. See, we weren't just strangers. We were enemies. Our thoughts, our desires, our intentions, they were hostile. But it gets worse because it wasn't just ideas. I think all of us have different times where we think, oh man, I could do this bad thing, but then we don't do it. But that's not the case here. We were hostile in mind and then we took those bad ideas and we did them. Doing evil deeds. We fulfilled the hostility of our mind. We carried out our enmity against God. Now, I'm not going to take much more time to develop our fallen nature. We've done that before. We've looked at our reality without Christ. But I want us to recognize the reality of our past condition, the seriousness of that condition. All of this came um, before Christ. Our condition before Christ is that we are dead. None of us came with a little bit of life to Christ. This is what Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You look at that verse two, in which you once walked. This is what we are doing naturally. Naturally, without Christ, we are alienated. We are hostile in mind. We are doing evil deeds. We are by nature children of wrath. Now you might be thinking, I thought he said this was going to be an encouraging message. He said his goal was to encourage us. That's not encouraging. But I would propose to you that it is in fact encouraging because that's our starting point, not our ending point. It would not be encouraging if that was where we still were. But if you have placed your faith in Jesus, that is not who you are anymore. Before I continue to our next verse, I just want to make sure that we get this. Do we realize, do we remember, do we comprehend who we were without Christ? And this isn't unique. This isn't something where just for us, no, this was all of humanity. Like the rest of mankind, all of us were by nature children of wrath. That's who we were. But now let's look at verse 22 because that's not who we are anymore. He has reconciled us. He has done this now. See, Paul wants us to realize who we were so that we can be encouraged by how far Christ has brought us. Because by the grace of God, we are not who we once were. Look at verse 21 and and into 22. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. We need to notice the progression of time that is presented here. 
Which identity did Paul reveal in verse 21? Was it our future identity, our present identity, or our past identity? It's our past. You once were this. This is who you used to be. But now look at verse 22. He has now reconciled us. You who were this, he has now reconciled. Before we move on, we need to address the issue of reconciliation because if you were here last week, we talked about this issue of reconciliation that is in the previous passage where we looked at the end where it says in verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So what's happening here? Because I talked about reconciliation one way last week and now I'm talking about it in a different way. We need to realize this. Not all things are reconciled in the same way. Not all things are reconciled at the same time. I'm going to say that again. Not all things are reconciled in the same way. Not all things are reconciled at the same time. The reconciliation we talked about last week was speaking of what Christ will do in the end. In the end, he is victorious. In the end, there is not still those who are rebelling against God who are still outside of his control. In the end, all things are brought under him. In the end, there is peace. The difficult truth that we saw last week, though, is that for some, we have the privilege of being reconciled in his body. We are under him because he is the head. But there are also those who will be reconciled, not in his body, but under his feet. Because in the end, Christ reigns and all of his enemies are brought under his feet. That is a truth, but it is a difficult truth. But it's one that we must realize that Christ does not go for the rest of eternity still trying to make this work. In the end, it will all be reconciled. But what is our privilege? And I don't mean our privilege, well, only the people here in this church, but I mean our privilege, the ones who have placed their faith in Christ. What is the privilege of those who have placed their faith in Jesus? You are now reconciled. It's not the reconciliation that happens in the end where you are conquered, where your knees are broken before him. It is the reconciliation of the present that we willfully bow before him and we are brought to our right place. What I want you to see is that Paul is encouraging the Colossians because they have the privilege of being now reconciled. Even now they are bowing their knee to their Lord. How did this happen? All through Jesus We are reconciled in his body through his death for his purpose. Let's look at these three ideas more closely. It says that we are reconciled in his body of flesh. That preposition in is one that we've already discussed a lot in the book of Colossians. It's one of those prepositions that that Paul uses a lot. And it's talking about this is where this happens. It is within Christ. It is this sphere that we are reconciled. Paul qualifies which body because in the previous paragraph he talked about the body of Christ which is the church. And he needs to qualify which body we're reconciled in because he's not saying that we are reconciled in the church. 
we are reconciled in the body of his flesh. And I just want to make a, a quick aside here because there is a heretical lie that is often proposed that it is only those who are part of this church, this denomination, only those who are in this thing that are truly reconciled. But let me be clear on this. There is no human institution, even a God-ordained institution, that can reconcile you. Paul makes this abundantly clear in 2 Corinthians 5.17-19, through 19, which Dr. Sayer alluded to at the beginning, where it says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. It is in Christ that we are reconciled, but we are given something. And he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. See, what we are given is the gospel. That is what we are called to proclaim. We go and tell people that if you are in Christ, that if you place your faith in Christ, if you believe the gospel, you are reconciled in him. It's not being reconciled because you are a member of this church. It's not being reconciled because you've joined a specific denomination. We do think you should be part of a church. We do think that that is a way in which Christ edifies you. But the thing that reconciles you is no human. It is only Christ. And he does it in his body of flesh. It's talking about the work of Christ. It's talking about Christ who took on flesh to ransom us. But that ransom didn't happen just because he lived in the flesh. It also happened because he died in the flesh. It says he has now reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death. That preposition that Paul uses, by, can also be through in verse 16, we see the same word used, where, but it's translated through, where it says that through him all things were created. It's the same preposition that's used here. How is it that we are reconciled? It's not just in his body, it's through his death. If he did not die, if he just came and lived, if he just came and observed and said good things to us, we could not be reconciled. It required that he came and revealed the truth, but it also required that he die. That he be the ransom for our sins. Three passages for, for us to look at. Luke 22, and he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Romans 8, for God had done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the re righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. 
is the encouragement starting to seep in. You were these things, but Christ has reconciled you now. He didn't do it at no cost to himself. This reconciliation was not easy. It meant that he took on flesh, and when he took on flesh, that was for the rest of eternity. Christ will always be both God and man. He doesn't remove his humanity. He will always be Christ, our God, but Christ who is also a man. It came with a cost. But not just the cost of taking on flesh, it was also the cost of dying in the flesh. When he came to this earth, he didn't just live a perfect life. He didn't just experience what life in this domain of darkness was like. No, the light came into the world and willingly was subjected to the great champion of the darkness, death. But the light shines in the darkness and not even death has overcome it. This is our encouragement. We are now reconciled. He paid the price in full. We are reconciled in his body of flesh. We are reconciled through his death. We are reconciled for his purpose. If you look at our passage, you won't see the preposition for, but the meaning's there. Why did he reconcile us? In order to present us before him. There was a purpose We're going to get more into that, but first, I want you to see a connection between Christ's ministry of reconciliation in us and Christ's work of creation of all things. Look back at verse 16 with me. Colossians 1.16 says this, For by him, or if you're using the ESV, there's a footnote that says it could also be in him. So it's the same word as in our passage. For in him... All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and all things were created for him. What do we see in creation? In creation, all things are created in him. All things are created through him. All things were created for him. But now let's look at us. As we saw in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, what are we? We are his new creation. And what do we have in our passage? That he has reconciled us in him, through his death, for his purpose. That same progression is here. We are his new creation. It is only in him that we are reconciled. It is only through his death that we are reconciled. It is only for his purpose that we are reconciled. Before moving on to that purpose, understand this. The work is already guaranteed. What I mean by that is that Christ has already come in the flesh. He has already died. The basis of your new identity, the reconciliation of Christ, is all founded on him and what he's already done. See, see the part that is discouraging to us is we're looking, we're saying, man, I'm, I'm just not doing it. I'm not walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. I'm not doing that. That's not the basis of our reconciliation. It's not my actions that reconcile me. 
It's his actions. And it's the actions he's already done. He's already come in the flesh. He's already died. See, we are meant to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. We do fail over and over. Yes, that is discouraging, but the greater truth is that our reconciliation is based on him and not us. So far, our part in this passage is that we were alienated, hostile in mind, evil in deeds. That's the part, if you read this passage, that you can claim credit for. But the ministry of reconciliation is established on him. That's our foundation. Let that be an encouragement. But there is a purpose for which we are reconciled. He has reconciled us for a reason. What is that reason? Look at verse 22. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Paul again gives that group of three. We are reconciled that we might be presented as holy, blameless, and above reproach. What does each of these mean? To to be holy is to be set apart. But it's not just anything that is set apart. I wouldn't say, well, if I move this stand away from that one, this stand is holy. It's set apart from that one. No, it's set apart for a purpose. When we talk about holiness in the Bible, when when God, God calls us to be holy, it's setting us apart for his purpose in order to minister and do the acts that he has called us to. In the Old Testament, we see God declaring both people and objects as holy so that they might serve him in his temple. They were set apart for his service. We are reconciled in order to be set apart for his service. That's our goal. We are set apart to glorify him. We're not set apart to do whatever we want. We're not set apart to follow our own desires. We're set apart to serve him. Paul goes on to say that we are reconciled in order to be presented as blameless. This term was used to describe animals that were worthy of sacrifice, that they were blameless, or perhaps a better way of understanding it, that they were without blemish. They were clean. They were worthy of being given to God. See, not only are we to be set apart for his service, we are also to be worthy sacrifices. The third term is to be above reproach. The idea here is that there is nothing that can be gripped on us, specifically that there is no sin that someone could grab hold of and demonstrate how we are disqualified. There's nothing that says, oh, wait, wait a second. You're saying that you've been reconciled? Hello, here, have you seen this sin? Have you seen what's going on here? As we are running the race with endurance, there should be no sin that is pulling us down. There should be nothing that the the evil one can hold on to. If I could use a, a silly analogy, we are to be Christians covered in Vaseline, not Velcro. When we are running this race, it should be slippery. There's nothing to hold on to. Not something that every little thing, every burr, that when you go through the woods, all of those things that stick to you, that's not what we're supposed to be like. We're supposed to be above reproach. Now you might be looking at these three attributes and thinking, man, this is precisely the area that I'm failing in. Wait, I'm reconciled to be holy blameless and above reproach? That, 
that's the reason I'm discouraged this morning. I'm discouraged because I look at myself and, and I know I'm not that. In a bit, we're going to look at some exhortation and what the goal of reconciliation should look like right now. But first, I want to give you two encouragements because of what Christ has guaranteed. See, the first reason we should be encouraged the re- is that the reason we may be presented as such is not based on our appearance, but Christ's. The reason that we may be presented as holy, blameless, and above reproach is not because of how I look. It's because of what Christ looks like. See, Christ is the aroma that arises from us to God. Christ is the righteousness we are clothed in which the Father sees. Christ is the wrath-absorbing sacrifice which the Father accepts for us. We aren't holy. We aren't blameless. We are not above reproach. But he is. See, this is what the Father sees. This is what truly, why we are truly qualified for the inheritance. This is why we were delivered from the domain of darkness. This is why we were transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son, because we are redeemed and forgiven through Christ. Because he is our peace, which he purchased with the blood of his cross. 2 Corinthians 2.14 says, but thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Colossians 3, 3 through 4 says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. We are encouraged because the one who is truly presented before God as holy, blameless, and above reproach is Christ himself. First John says, little children, I write these things to you so that you may not sin, but if you do, when you do, we have an advocate. We have one who is blameless. We have one who is holy. We have one who is above reproach. And it is on his merit, not our own, that we may be presented as such. The second encouragement, though, is that the encouragement that even though God ultimately, that Christ is the one presented, he even now is transforming us into his image. He has begun the work of transforming us into his image. When we talk about that what God sees is Christ, that doesn't mean like, hey, you've got this umbrella of protection. You go ahead and do whatever you want to do because God's not going to see it. It's hidden. He only can see Jesus. So we're free to do. You know, let's sin all the more so that grace can abound. No. We are still meant to progress in this, but here's the encouragement. He who began the good work will bring it to completion. He reconciled us to make us holy like him, to make us blameless like him, to make us above reproach like him, and he will finish that work. Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. My failures are not greater than his victories. His victories are always greater than my 
failures. You might have come this morning discouraged in light of your failures. His victory is greater. I understand the weight of feeling like a failure. I understand the burden of trying to live in a manner worthy of the Lord and coming up short. But please don't lose sight of what Christ has done. Remember who you were without Christ. Then remember what Christ has done and be encouraged by the work he accomplishes. See how far you've come. Or better stated, see how far he's brought you. These things are guaranteed for those who are in Christ. Our failures are not greater than his victories. While I believe Paul's main goal is to encourage them, I also believe there is an element of exhortation. I do not say rebuke, but exhort. An exhortation is an encouragement to do the right thing. When we look at the purpose, the reason we were reconciled, that's not just for the future. Reconciliation that leads to being holy, blameless, and above reproach is not just a future guarantee, it's also a present goal. We are to be aside for service now. We are to be blameless sacrifices now. We are to be above reproach now. Paul's admonition to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord while completed in the future is called for in the present. But how does that happen? We've already identified our inability to do this perfectly. But thankfully, God already knows we aren't perfect. That doesn't mean, though, he doesn't still call us to progress. Remember, it's already guaranteed. That's the encouragement. But that doesn't mean that then we just say, who cares? No, the guarantee is in Christ. But there is also the call to progress. There is the call to grow. When we look at the book of Colossians, Paul does talk about both the beginning of our faith in Christ, our salvation. He talks about the end of, with our faith in Christ, which is our glorification. But the majority of the book is talked about the process of our faith in Christ, which is sanctification. This is your position. You are in Christ. This is the promise. It will come to an end. But the process is meant to look more and more every day conforming to the image of Christ. So how do we progress in Christ? If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. There's some difficulty in understanding this verse, and, and so here's what I want to do. First, I'm going to focus on the encouraging element, and then I'll circle back to focus on the exhorting element. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. What's encouraging? When Paul says, if indeed, that construction in Greek is one that assumes that you will. In, in English, we, we, we do rhetorical questions. And if you ask a rhetorical question, you don't need the answer. The answer is assumed. When Paul says, if indeed you continue in the faith, he is assuming they will continue in the faith. 
This idea of continuing in the faith is that the idea that they will persevere. Their faith will be ongoing. Our faith is not something just active in salvation, meaning I had faith once, Jesus saved me, now I don't need faith anymore. No, their faith is meant to continue. They will be stable and steadfast. This is an idea of a strong and immovable foundation. In Colossians 2.7, it talks about us being rooted and built up in him. That Christ is the sure foundation that they must be established on. They will not shift from the hope of the gospel. This means that the good news of the true gospel is where their hope is found. Where really is their hope for salvation? It must be in the truth of the gospel and not another means. But here's the encouragement. The ones who Christ calls, he keeps. That's the reason Paul can assume the truth of this statement. Again, it's that guarantee, it's that view that sees the ultimate conclusion of our faith. John 10, among many other passages, is very clear. If Christ has saved us, we are his. Nothing can take us out of his hand. We are secure. That is the great encouragement. He not only guarantees the conclusion, he guarantees the process. Through Christ, we will continue in our faith. Through Christ, we will be stable and steadfast. Through Christ, we will not shift in our hope of the gospel. And so you can be encouraged in that, that he holds us fast. However, the question is, do Christians ever struggle to continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel? I want to divide this issue into two, that there is an element where the ultimate case of the eternal salvation, of the eternal security, the perseverance of the saints, that is true. But there is another side that we need to consider what is going on in the present. In the present, in the microcosm, not the macro, but in the micro, do we often struggle to live the way we should live? Yes. Why? Because we're not continuing in the faith. We're not stable and steadfast. We are shifting from our hope in the gospel. This is where the rest of the book of Colossians is going to go to. He says we must continue in the faith and not be deluded with plausible arguments. We must be stable and steadfast rather than taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. We must not shift from our hope in the gospel so that we might not submit to regulations according to human precepts and teachings that have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body that are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. I didn't write those things. All of those are in chapter 2. What would you call someone who is being deluded by plausible arguments? What would you call someone who is being taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit and not according to Christ? What would you call someone who's submitting to regulations according to human precepts, according to self-made religion? Would you say that they are continuing in the faith? That they are stable and steadfast? That they are not shifting from the hope of the gospel? No. Why is this so important? Because if we are truly to be sanctified, if this process is to be ongoing, we must persevere in Christ. We've already identified. When we look at our own strength, what do we come up with? What's the grade we give ourselves? F, failure. 
We're, we shift from these things. But Paul is saying, don't go to those things. You not me, need to remain in Christ. Do you see how the process that Paul is calling us to is actually an exhortation lest we depart and fail in our present goal? The way we progress in Christ is by persevering in Christ. We continue in the faith. We are established in him, stable and steadfast. We do not shift from the hope of the gospel. What gospel? This is what he says at the end. It's not just any good news that we choose to place our hope in. It's the true gospel, the gospel that they had heard, the gospel which was being proclaimed all over the world. And as we saw in verse six, was bearing fruit and increasing the gospel which Paul dedicated his life to be a minister of. That's where the next passage is going to talk about is Paul's ministry in the gospel. But understand that this is what protects us from that which would call us away from Christ. It is also what allows us to live for Christ. It's persevering in Christ. But make no mistake, even the process of persevering is still something we can't do on our own. We must rely on Christ to accomplish this. Jude 24 and 25 says this, now to him, who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. We can't persevere on our own. It must be something that he accomplishes in us. This is our big idea. Our new life through Christ causes us to live for Christ as we persevere in Christ. How was it that we are no longer alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds? It is our new life through Christ. It is through Christ who has now reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death. For what purpose did Christ reconcile us? That we might live for Christ. He reconciled us in order to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And how is it that we are progressively sanctified that we might accomplish our present goal? We persevere in Christ. We persevere in Christ as we continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. As the worship team comes up, it can be easy to grow discouraged when we look at our life and think, I'm failing. I'm not living worthy of the Lord. Let me submit to you that the very fact that you are considering and reflecting the ways in which you are not living in a manner worthy of the Lord is in itself proof that Christ is continuing his work in you. You didn't used to be bothered by these things. You used to be alienated. You used to be hostile in mind. You used to do de evil deeds and it didn't bother you. The fact that it bothers you now is evidence that Christ is continuing his work in you. The reason you are aware that your practice in life does not match your position in Christ is because Christ is still producing his image in you. Be encouraged, there is progress. Consider who you once were. Consider what Christ has already done. Consider what he has guaranteed that he will finish. Ultimately, he will produce in you what you always were meant to be. That process will be made complete. He has guaranteed it through his work. Be encouraged. But also, 
Consider who you once were and realize that's not who you are anymore. See how far Christ has brought you and he wants to take you further. Not just in the future, but right now through his strength. He gave us this new life, not just to skip to the end, but to also produce growth in the present. And that growth is accomplished as we persevere in him. As we get discouraged, the solution is not to look elsewhere. The solution is to look even more to Christ, to cling to him. Our new life through Christ causes us to live for Christ as we persevere in Christ.